your Bibles with you, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't, the text should be on one of the inserts in your bulletin, or is on one of the inserts in your bulletin. Frederick Langbridge wrote about two men in prison in his work, A Cluster of Quiet Thoughts. He said this, Two men looked through the bars. One saw the mud, the other the stars. Let me say that again. Two men looked through the bars in prison. One saw the mud, the other the stars. Beloved, what do you see when you look through the bars of this world? What do you want to see? I'm weary of this world and I'm only 45 years old. I'm trying to hide the weight that I feel about it, about the coming days, but I don't know how well I can. I've never been good at that. (laughs) As a preacher, I wonder what to say to my wife and kids, to my church, as things are starting to become real. Like I, I say often, we've always enjoyed such a favorable place in American culture that is changing or has been changing for a long time and now it seems all that is just speeding up exponentially. I think soon decisions will have to be made, lines will have to be drawn. At the end of chapter 3, Paul told Timothy that the scripture, the word of God, was the breath of God put into words. In chapter 4 this morning, Paul tells Timothy that his calling is to preach the breath of God. The culmination of all Paul's instructions to Timothy in these two letters centers on preaching. The preaching of the word is the primary task of the church. Now, why is that? How could the most pressing matter of the moment in the last days, the times of difficulty, be centered on preaching? Surely something else is more important for the church in such times. Political action, maybe. Social justice, revolution, boycotting, legal defense, these kinds of things. The list goes on and on. Surely one of those things, as pressure begins to mount, is more important, more pressing than the preaching of God's word. But beloved, hear the word of God to his church this morning. These are his words. Nothing is more important than the proclamation and the hearing of the word of God. For that word is the truth, the gospel, that contains the only promise of salvation and eternal life in a world filled with sin and death. This is the absolutely crucial truth that the word of God reveals Why is the preaching of the word so vitally important to the church? Maybe the most important thing about the church altogether. Because the goal of being a Christian is to see Jesus when he appears. This is the goal. This is what we live for. Preaching is to stir our souls until they're fixed on that day. On his appearing. I have never felt. I've known him. 2 Timothy 4, I've known preach the word as most of us have for as long as I can remember. I've never felt the weight of this text more than I've felt it in these last few days. Here on the eve of what might be a new president who knows what that will bring in the midst of a
pandemic, whether it merits that title or not, actually doesn't really matter. That's how it's being treated. The goal of our lives is to see Jesus, and preaching is a means to that end, to the reason for which we're living. That is why Paul marks it with such immediacy and urgency for Timothy as Paul himself is about to leave this world, right? Whether by life or by death, our goal is to see Jesus appear. That's our role. Did you know that in the return of Jesus and Second Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. In 2 Timothy 1.10, the first appearing of Jesus was the manifestation of God's testimony to the truth that saves in the gospel. His second and the last appearing, beloved, in our text this morning, that's what we're living for. That's the heartbeat of this text, of this charge, and of Paul's whole life. The question for us is what it has always been. Will we believe the word of God? We are going to need the adjusted word of God preached to us, the unadjusted word of God preached to us, until we see the face of Jesus The only path worth taking is the path that gets us to his appearing the fastest. That's why preachers preach. That's the whole point. Let me pray. Father, I ask for your name and for your glory among your people that you would steady my heart and my mouth. May your spirit consume me for the sake of your word and for the sake of your people. May we all hear clearly what you are saying to your church in this book, I ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first two verses of Second Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is a commandment from God himself and his son through Paul to Timothy in Ephesus and to every preacher of the biblical gospel in all creation since the day it was written. We find that God the Father and his son Jesus Christ are present in preaching. They are present in this charge to the preacher Every time he gets behind the pulpit, they are here, beloved, right now in the word. They are here. This is a charge indeed. It's loaded with electricity. Present here and now is this Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. All judgment has been committed to Jesus. John 5, 22 and 23. Timothy is given this charge because Jesus is present in preaching and because Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and because this Jesus is going to appear one day. He is coming. That's a second reason here for this charge. And the third, Timothy is charged by his kingdom. Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, is coming, and he is coming to reign. Therefore, preach the word. 
And the Word was with God and was God, and that Word has become flesh, which means to preach the Word is to preach Christ crucified for sinners who is coming to reign forever and ever and ever. Beloved, that is what Scripture reveals. That is what it's for. That you and I may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing would have life in His name. So that when He appears, because He is going to appear, we will be there to embrace Him with joy rather than to run from Him and cry for the rocks to fall on us in dread. All creation is moving towards the return of Jesus Christ. In 3.16 and 17, Paul gave Timothy his equipment for this task. In chapter 4, he's telling him to use it. Preach the word. Preach what you've been given. Preach the word of God. Notice, that's the calling. Paul never tells Timothy to produce results. Ever. Timothy's responsibility, his charge, is about what to say. Not what he's supposed to make happen. Mike Stone says, the real analysis of what God did through a sermon will be made at the end of the age, not the end of the service. I put no stock in invitations. I'm looking for eternity. I'm looking for what matters the most then. Because the word of God must be preached when people want to hear it and when they don't. And you see the connection? There is no bearing whatsoever on what is to be preached based on what will produce results. The commands here are so abrupt so that Timothy will pick up on the fact that it's urgent. It has to happen now. We don't have time to dilly-dally, right? We never have. We never have. Eternity is always present. It's always the overarching reality on what we're doing. Be ready in season and out of season in the church, beloved. When has the word ever been in season in the world? He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season in the church. So there will be times in the church when the word is seasonal and when it isn't. In the church, there will be times when people want to hear the word of God. And there will be times in the church when people do not want to hear the word of God. And Paul is telling him what people want to hear has nothing to do with the contents, Timothy, of what you preach. Nothing. Since the word is sufficient, as we found in chapter 3, when it's unwanted, The problem lies in the desires of those who are hearing it, not in its contents. Be ready, he says. Remember, these are the last days and the times of difficulty in the church. And that's characterized, you know that it's there, by lovers of self permeating the church who don't hear what accords with their self-centered nature when they don't hear what accords with their self-centered nature. They'll reject the word that we are being told by Paul, commanded by God exclusively to preach, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now notice how that goes right with what the word is profitable for 
in 3.16. Go back there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The believer has all one needs in the word to endure. So does the preacher for his charge. Reprove with the word when people need correction. Rebuke with the word when people are in error. Exhort with the word. Always lift up their souls toward the truth with the truth. And do it with complete patience and teaching. Because that is what that will require. Why do I preach, for example, mainly through books of the Bible? Why do I do that? Because of this text. Because to me the most obvious way to preach the word is to preach the word with expositional preaching through chapters and verses at a time. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. I'm saying for me, that's the safest way to do it. I don't know how else you would do it. Preaching through books of the Bible keeps me on track. It keeps me honest. Ideally, it keeps me out of it for the most part, or at least I hope it does. Every time I get behind this pulpit, every time, for the sake of looking at him with awe and worship when he finally appears... I want to be praying with Art Azurdia. May God grant that we would bring to the pulpits of our churches the very atmosphere of heaven and speak to our people from the borders of another world. You see, that's what we need. We need a word that transcends this world every week. These words come from heaven, beloved, from heaven. They are what we need. Why why is the charge so abrupt? Why is it so clear and plain? Four, verse three, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The preacher has to commit himself to preaching God's word above and to the exclusion of all others because the time is coming and now is here when people will not want to hear it. Isn't that interesting? When people start to not want to hear it, what does the preacher do? He keeps preaching it. And he preaches it more clearly and more loudly, so to speak. The word must never be adjusted, ever, to the desires and expectations of people. Paul wasn't warning Timothy about a time he wouldn't be living in or need to prepare for. That time was coming very fast. He was in it. It became in Timothy's time just as it is today. People's ears itch so much they honestly believe that the charge of the preacher is not what paul told timothy the charge is people honestly think the preacher's job is to scratch their itching ears people will always prefer to have doctrine that adjusts to and conforms with their passions rather than having to adjust their passions and desires to the word of god The problem is the Word of God doesn't scratch ears, it boxes them. To want anything other than the Word from heaven is death. These are the words of life. 
This book reveals Jesus. These words are those that are able to make us wise for salvation. Every other word in the cosmos is sand. We preach God's word and not our own so that when the complaints come, we have the ability to say, you're not going against my words. Your problem is not with what I am saying. Your problem is with what God is saying. If I'm preaching me, I can't do that. Right? If I'm preaching God, I have to do that. Because lovers of self who demand that preachers preach what they want to hear and what sounds good to them, they are never passive. Ever. They will, Paul says, accumulate for themselves. Accumulate more and more and more. You said the Bible always makes that distinction. There's the one word of God and then there's every other thing. Accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When Paul says that, he's letting us know the desire for something other than the word of God comes from the flesh. That's why he uses the word passions. We have to learn to identify that in ourselves. Right? Just like we, when we're trying to figure out what we want to eat, we try to figure out what do I feel like, what do I don't, we need to learn as believers to understand what we actually need to have as his people. We may want a thousand other things. The question is, what do we need? They will turn away from the truth, he says, and wander off into myths. We love to laugh at how backwoods and archaic say that the Greeks were, that they honestly believed that there were gods on the top of Mount Olympus. Of course, that goes away when you can climb to the top of Mount Olympus and realize there's nobody there. It's no different today in the myths we choose to believe. Myths are myths. And we wander off into them when we turn away from the truth. The truth keeps you steady and on the path. When you turn from it, you're wandering. There's nowhere to go. You just wander off and eventually believe myths. Cleverly devised myths. Paul calls them elsewhere. If we knew they were stupid, we wouldn't believe them. We cannot let this happen. It is amazing what we will believe when we reject the truth of God's word. It's amazing what we'll believe. We're not being shaped by the truth. We'll be shaped by lies, period. We are never neutral. We aren't that great that we can just remain neutral all the time, unguided with ourselves steering the ship. That's Eden. That was the goal. We cannot let the flesh that is waging war against our souls determine where we get our truth, beloved. Addressing your, it may not always feel like the word of God is sufficiently addressing our needs and our questions and our souls. But beloved, that's not because it's unfit for the task. It's because our souls don't believe that all they really need is Jesus. And preaching exists to convince us that this is the truth. That is all I am trying to do when I get behind the pulpit. I will trust the Holy Spirit to change your lives individually. My goal is to get you to look at Christ and be amazed at Him. That's it. 
When that's not the goal, we go looking for what we want rather than what we need. And look, no question, there are literally probably a million preachers in America alone that preach the gospel better than I do. No question. But as Spurgeon says, none of them can preach a better gospel. None of us can. And so I can't promise you that I will always preach well, that it will always be fun to listen to or entertaining or winsome or any of these things. And it's not that I'm trying not to be that. I don't think that's more spiritual. I want to make it miserable for 45 minutes to an hour, however long it goes. Sometimes I don't know. I don't want it to stink. I don't want it to be boring or you understand. So I'm not trying to. I'm simply saying. I can't promise you it will always be a good sermon. What I can promise you, because I have to, is that as long as God gives me grace and grants me to speak, I will labor with everything I am to understand this word to the extent that I can preach it to you. That's the goal. Don't turn from the path of God's word. Stick to the road. Stick to the road. If you trust yourself as a guide, you will only ever go where your desires want you to. Fall out of love with yourself and trust that what you need is a word from another world. The times of which Paul prophesies here have come. And the the thing about itching ears is it's not an amalgam. It's not an anomaly. It seems to be how Paul is describing the state of the church. This is how it will be. People will want more than the word. Their ears will itch for it. And they'll demand the preacher scratches them. Gregory of Nazianza said, when this syndrome is in place, people who call themselves Christian will find the truth in Jesus Christ intolerable and will seek to stamp it out. Beloved, the scripture does not scratch our sinful passions. It seeks to eliminate them, to overcome them, to kill them. Because they do not give life. And Jesus is in the life business. Because following them, our sinful passions, will not lead to the joyful embrace of Jesus at his appearance. It will make you forget that it's going to happen. It will make you dread that it's going to happen. I'm always amazed at the attitude with which we look to the end times. It's pure fear. We are scared to death of everything we believe is supposed to happen. And we try to keep it from happening. You want Jesus to come back or not? Why do we do this? Why? God has not given us a spirit of fear. And we look to the future with absolute dread. We're chicken littles. And we have life. When you're preparing to take off on an airplane, you've ever been on a plane, you've heard the stewardess go through their spiel about Safety precautions, right? Everything they say. Then they, in the middle of that, they say something that never sounds right to the ear. It never sounds like that's the way it should be. In the unlikely event of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mask will drop from the ceiling above your head. Secure your own mask before helping others. That just sounds like the most selfish thing in the world. Why would we ever secure our own mask before helping others? That's itching ears. That's how it works. There's no way 
I'm saving myself before, before I save my little kids. Well, you noble, well-meaning idiot. If you don't secure your face mask, you are going to pass out and your children are going to die. All right, so the point of it is you have to be able to breathe and stay conscious in case you need to help somebody who's beside you. But human reason doesn't work that way. It sounds wrong. It sounds wrong. No, no, no. You don't take care of yourself first. You take care of others. This is what we do with Scripture. It's exactly what we do with Scripture. That No, no, no. That's not right. That's not how it works. That's not real life. I'll trust myself. I'll go with my instinct. Right? Not only will our souls become unconscious and deaf to the truth then, but we won't have a gospel that saves to proclaim to others either if that's how we think about God's word. The world doesn't need more people talking. The world needs a clearer message. We don't need more opinions. We need truth. We need life. And this is the only place that reveals where eternal life is. Don't wander off into myths because they sound better. Because our ears itch. No, put the calamine lotion of God's word on your soul and cling to the truth. Isn't it interesting? This is very interesting. If you look at this verse mathematically, right? Two-thirds of preaching is corrective. The majority of preaching is corrective. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 66% of the description of how one should preach the word assumes then that our thinking will need to be corrected most of the time. We don't default to the truth. We default to lies. Preaching is trying to pull us back to the truth. So that means then that preachers don't exhort with complete patience and teaching, which they're supposed to do. They don't repeat themselves because they think their congregations are dumb. Not at all. But because the reality is that our ears itch for more than or different from the word. And that assumption comes from the Holy Spirit. It is the breath of God in the church. We need to hear this. Assume that our thinking needs corrected. We, we want church often to be an echo chamber. Just tell me what I already believe is true, and I'll amen that. No, most of the time, preaching has to correct. That, that's why it doesn't sit well. That's why we accumulate for ourselves teachers we do like. They say everything we like. Right? And we can, very, we can spiritualize that very much. Some of us like to listen to preachers that beat the tar out of us because that's what we like. Right? It doesn't make us more holy. We like to feel like we have enough good sense to feel guilty. Beloved, we need Christ on both sides of the aisle of holiness. We live in times when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Therefore, sound doctrine must be preached. Do you see how Paul argues? The congregation is not in charge of the contents of the sermon. Neither is the preacher. The God who speaks tells us to echo his words in the church. And since the preacher is called to do the work of an evangelist here in the church, mind you, do the work of an evangelist in the church, 
not do the work of a recruiter. He is to preach the word and nothing else, and in so doing, fulfills his ministry by the content of his sermons. Right? Not numbers, not accomplishments, not popularity. Paul wanted nothing to do with these things. We will most likely need corrected as we're going throughout our lives. That's what we have to understand about ourselves. All of us, we most likely need corrected. The preacher has to listen to preaching. I have to be corrected often, often, more often than I'd like to admit. Our memories are so short. Our passions are so strong. The preacher implores us to continue in what we have learned and have firmly believed back in 314 because it saves and nothing else does. The Christian constantly needs to hear the word that saves more than any other word. The primary need of every human being is salvation, forgiveness, grace. This is proclaimed in the word through the gospel. Look at 5 through 8. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, no matter what happens from here, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Keep yourself grounded, Timothy. Don't buy into the fads. Don't think there's an easy way through. There isn't. Don't follow popularity or applause. Don't jump on the next big wave of new truth. Keep your eyes front and center. Hear the words of a dying man this morning, beloved. Listen to Paul. Paul has been poured out by God as a drink offering. Onto the world so that they might hear the gospel of salvation. We tend to think that things that get poured out are being wasted. But as one commentator says, God keeps track of everything that goes into the soil. Paul's life was not a waste. And when you hear him talk about that in verse 7, he isn't dying with pride. He's dying with the realization that he fulfilled his ministry by not shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. That's the only thing that kept Paul's conscience clear. I preached what I was supposed to preach. That's it. That's it. That's the fight for the preacher. That's the fight that must be fought and won, keeping the faith by trusting the word to both save and keep the one who preaches and everyone to whom he preaches to. From this moment on, henceforth in verse 8, Paul's crown awaits. Again, no matter what's about to come, the crown awaits. Faithfulness produces the crown of righteousness. And notice what righteousness is here in this passage. Faith in verse 7. Which not only reveals itself in personal endurance, but in the message the preacher proclaims. Faithfulness to the word of truth, the gospel back in 2.15 in Colossians 1.5. The crown of righteousness comes to the preacher from the righteous judge. Think about this for a minute. 
God will give us all our righteousness and then he will reward us for having it. His grace is limitless for his children. It never stops. Grace upon grace upon grace. But here's the thing this morning. What made Paul endure? How did he stay faithful the same way we will? Paul's first love was the appearance of Jesus. Henceforth, there is laid up for me in verse eight, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear what he's telling Timothy? That's the way home. That's the way home. That's it. What was Paul doing? That's how he endured so much. He loved the idea of the appearance of Jesus. Now we know what drove Paul to face his death standing on both feet. His goal was to see Jesus. That's it. Whether by his appearing in his return or his appearing to Paul's eyes at death, the goal was to see Jesus, there is one means God has given to the church to keep us looking for his appearing then. The proclamation of the word. That's what the word has to do. If I preach me, if I preach you and us improved and not Christ crucified, we won't see him. We will constantly be looking in the mirror and there is no endurance, no hope, no salvation in my face or any of yours. In the word, Christ is revealed to his people. That's why it must be preached. Our whole hearts are to be set on his appearing. Either his return or his revelation to us finally in our deaths. There is no other way to remain faithful in this world. There is no other way. It depends entirely on that which we have set our eyes. And so... In 2 Timothy, the final words of the Apostle Paul reveal that we are going to need the unadjusted word of God preached to us until we see the face of Jesus. This text makes everything plain. It levels everything out and lets us see. Again, the question is whether or not we'll believe it. What is the church's task here and now? What is our role in Society. What is my job as we head into 2021? Well, what Timothy's job was in the early 60s AD. Since the truth that makes us never changes, we never change in what we are and what we're here for. Look back at verse 1. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and By his appearing and his kingdom. Now, do we understand what that means? That Christ's kingdom and only Christ's kingdom must be the ultimate reality with which Timothy was concerned as a preacher. That was it. Do we understand this when it comes to what we desire or demand from the pulpit or from a preacher. That the preacher's concern is with Christ's kingdom, not the world's. 
God has sent the preacher to speak to his people from the borders of another world, beloved, not to convince them to make their home in this one. I don't want you to feel like this world is home or to be convinced that it can be made into it. I don't want you to think that. That's the killer. That's the killer of the Christian soul. Loving this world as though it's home or could become so if it just gets itself together. Beloved, it's cursed. It's been subjected to futility by the one who made it. It's not going to become amenable to the sojourning believer. It will not happen. And the more we fight to make it happen, the less we think of home. That message is unwanted in the church. It makes people more angry than anything else when you start trying to convince them that this is not home. There's one thing worth dying for, and it isn't this world. That's not popular. That's offensive. Considering all the noble people that have died for other things. We don't talk about that, do we? We don't talk about all the people that have gone to hell, dying for noble reasons. You think it was worth it? When the fire consumes you and the worm begins to chew at your flesh, you think it was worth it? You think hell's not real? You think eternity isn't coming? You think that this little 70, 80, 90 year blip we have, that anything here is worth that? I don't know if I believe that. Right? Like this is, I'm the preacher. I'm, I'm gonna need the word as much as the congregation to correct my thinking. We don't believe this. We want to believe we want heaven more than anything. But you cut us a little bit and we bleed earth. Will the church continue to hear that message if the government begins to crack down on us and take our rights away? Or will we demand another one? I won't give you another one. I'll quit first. Just so we're clear. There will not be another message from this pulpit but Christ alone. And when you hear something different, you know I've been deceived and you've got to get rid of me because I won't see it. People that are deceived don't know they're deceived because they're deceived. We must hear the word of God again and again and again until we see him because this is where Christ is revealed. It takes precedence In the very structure and order of the church service, beloved. The word. All the music should point to it and come from it. The praying should point to it and come from it. The preaching should point to it and come from it. Everything. Everything. In Titus 2, 13 and 14, our very hope is the appearing. Our hope as Christians is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'm begging you, I'm begging me, close the eyes of your heart this morning that you might see Jesus. I love the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a beautiful song. I love it. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Absolutely. 
but also they will in a very real way become more clear in the light of His glory and His grace because we'll finally see them for what they are. I mean, that works down into our ethics. You can't love somebody until you don't need anything from them. People can't be loved until the church believes the gospel. Until the church finds its hope in Christ alone. We can't serve this world. All you can do is put band-aids on it. The world is passing away. All of it. All of it. Do you believe that? We need the word preached to us. When we don't fix our eyes on his appearing, we wander off into myths. We will start to believe lies. It is a myth that your virtue will save you. It is a myth that your patriotism will save you. It is a myth that your tolerance will save you. It is a myth that your morals will save you. It is a myth that your conservatism or your liberalism will save you. It is a myth. It is a myth that this nation will endure forever. You do understand that. It's a myth. I don't say that because I hate this nation. I say it because we are Christians. Right? Why would we disagree with this? What have we come to believe? What have we wandered off into? The truth shouldn't threaten us. It shouldn't cause us to panic. It should be a welcome thing to be reminded that everything in this world is passing away. It should be welcomed to our hearts, believer. Because it's a reminder from home. We, we all, most of us are very concerned right now about the future of our kids. What's it going to be like for our little children? I, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. What do I think it can be at the end of the day? I want to build into them that this is passing away, whether it goes good from here or bad. I want them to be in eternity. I want them to be saved. I want them to love and know Christ more than I want anything else for them. And if I have come to believe that can't be done unless the government is a certain way or a certain candidate is in, I have wandered off into myths. I have come to believe lies. The goal of being a Christian is not to turn this world into a livable place, but to see Jesus when he finally appears. And if we say, well, that's just not real life, that doesn't really help anybody, it doesn't address real needs, ask the people sinking on the Titanic what they needed most. What do you think, a nice dinner? Right, new clothes? No. Save me. I'm drowning. And beloved, it's double that in the world because people don't know they're drowning. And we don't know they are because we're smarter than them or better than them. We know they are because Christ has opened our eyes to the truth and hasn't opened theirs yet. Well, that's why we're here. To proclaim the truth that opens blind eyes. 
That's the word, remember, that's the word of God. What does it do when it's spoken? It opens blind eyes, it unstops deaf ears, it raises the dead, it causes the lame to walk. That's all a picture of salvation. And we've peddled Christianity to the flesh until it smells like life when Paul called it the aroma of death to the world. Did you know that's what the gospel is in 2 Corinthians? The aroma of death to the world. A reminder that this Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. By the word, look to Christ. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How does that happen? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Where do we see that? In Christ, the face of Jesus. Where do we see that? In the Word. Will we believe God's Word as we consider what it means to be the church in the world, to be a sojourner and not a citizen? We need the unadjusted Word of God preached to us until we see the face of Jesus. Two men looked through the stars or looked through the bars. One saw the mud, the other the stars. What do you see when you look through the bars of this world? What do you see? Preaching exists so that you see the stars. Through the word, you will see Christ. Therefore, it must be preached until we're done. Until he appears, either when he splits the eastern sky or we die and see him. He alone can rescue. He alone can save. He alone keeps his promises. There is nothing threatening to you in the word of God to the child of God. It's all life. It's all peace. It's all hope. And it's forever. Let's pray. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your promise. In it we have everything we need. What else is there but you and your word? Please help us understand. Please help us believe this. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for all who will listen. Amen. Amen.